How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Welcome, everyone, to Chasing Giants podcast with Don Higgins, episode 38. It's November 22nd, and I have Don Higgins on the line. How you doing tonight, Don? Good. How are you, Terry? I'm doing good. Uh, before we get started, uh, th- while that intro was just playing, um, I went over and looked and pulled up the analytics page of uh, the podcast, and um, I'm a little bit humbled right now because this is this is episode 38. We've been doing this for about 13 months, and we just went over 100,000 uh, people that's downloaded this uh, one of these episodes. So over 100,000 people have uh, listened to our podcast at some point in time. Um, just crazy that uh, we've picked up this much traction this fast, and, and I want to start this episode by just... Uh, uh, telling everybody how much I appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We had no idea what to expect when we started, and uh, we knew we was going to be a little different. Uh, we're not going to be politically correct. We're going to share our faith and some other things. We wasn't sure how that was going to be accepted, but it sounds like it's fantastic. It's the first I've heard. Yeah, I mean, I, I just literally pulled this up and saw it, and when I saw uh, six figures, that's that's really awesome. And you know, uh, when we first started this, we thought that, you know, Don was going to be the ranter and I was going to keep him reined in. And I think pretty much we end up trading off and I've, <laughs> I've ran it a little bit. You've had to rein me back in a little bit, but there'll probably be something we ran about today and that's all right. But, um, um, at the end of the day, uh, we hope that we're still putting out something that's entertaining, but most of all the comments that we're getting back from people, uh, we got one from one of our listeners tonight. He, um, that he sent me. He had not. He didn't shoot a deer tonight, but he said, uh, just based on his position of his stand and his setup of stuff that he's learned from this podcast, I think he saw over thirty deer tonight within thirty yards of him, and not one of them even looked up and winded him. And he said, "I would have never had that before before the podcast." So we hope this is entertaining, but most of all, we want uh, we hope that this gives people ideas on how to improve their um, their hobbies in the outdoors. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we're still students of the whitetail ourselves, so we're we're all learning, but we're at different stages, and uh, we can help each other out. That's what it's all about. Yeah. So uh, please, um, please uh, continue to share us with your friends. Leave a comment. Leave a ranking on whatever podcast. Um, we are publishing these on Don's Chasing Giants YouTube channel, so you can comment and uh, and leave messages there and be subscribed to it. But thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. A hundred thousand uh, uh, unique downloads um, is is really awesome. Uh, no no more uh, than thirty seven episodes in, so we appreciate that. 
Yep, good news. All right. Also good news for you, Terry. You shot a buck. I did. Um, I just literally rolled in back here to Kentucky. Um, I went straight to the taxidermist and dropped off the cape and the and the, um, the antlers and dropped him off. Um, I'll be honest with you, this was one of the hardest weeks of hunting I've ever had. Um, and even though, I mean, I'll be real with everybody, I was down. Um, this year has just been an absolute roller coaster of adversity for me and um but it can change with just a few seconds and that happened uh yesterday morning at about eight forty-five. so shot a good deer um i don't talk real openly about what my specific goals were this year but i wanted to i wanted to target a buck that was 160 or over with one of my tags i have three and uh, the other ones i was looking for a 150 class buck um this one didn't quite make it um I think I texted you after uh, I shot him and said there might have been a little bit of frustration in it because I I knew he was I knew he was a good frame and he had mass he was mature and uh, I shot him but I I'll be honest with everybody here I did not know that he was going to push 150 that close but um um I uh um I want to just answer a couple questions that you know when I posted that picture. Uh, the reason that I posted the least, like I could, I could have taken that buck over to our buddy Kyle Harmon and he can put that wide angle lens on the front of his camera and get like three inches from me and make that deer look 165 inches. Um, the picture that I posted of him yesterday was probably the least flattering of any picture that we took of that deer. And I had the deer facing the, away from the camera. I had me not looking at the camera because um, I wanted the focus of that post to be about my wife, because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have even hunted that day. And to put that in perspective, I had not seen a mature deer um, in probably about a month. So um, I had an incident where I'd locked my keys in my truck. Um, I was using an app on my phone to unlock and unlock it and remote start it, and the app didn't work. All of my gear was in the truck. So uh, my wife, being the wife that she is, volunteered. I did not ask her for everybody wondering. Uh, she drove halfway to Illinois and met me. Uh, I borrowed a truck and uh, drove down and got the spare set of keys just so I could hunt uh, Saturday morning. So um, I realized I didn't give a lot of information about the deer, about the hunt, um, but it was pretty cool seeing all those comments uh, with people um, basically giving her a shout out because uh, she was as much to do with me getting that buck than anybody. Well, you know, we can have plans uh, for our season, but that doesn't mean our plans are going to go the way we want. Um, you know, sometimes things don't turn out the way we want. You just got to roll with it. And, uh, you know, you've had a lot of adversity this year from your, um, your knee surgery and all that. Um, had a, crossbow blow up on you when he was shooting your target buck in Kentucky and um, you've had a lot of things working against you but it's always nice to have a, a supporting spouse at home and got that so yeah, that in itself is a blessing right I remember when we first started the podcast you were doing uh, the profile of big buck serial killers and one of those is you know, I think that we talked about that you added to the end of it was uh, you know a supporting network at home and, um, yep. you know, she, she doesn't hunt 
she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand why I, I do it, but she gets me. And, um, you know, I think your wife, Robin is, is in the same boat. Uh, Casey's right. Been, Casey's been hunting with me, I think one time, and I'm not sure if we were married or dating, but she said she'd never do it again. <laughs> um, but the buck, the buck ended up scoring about one forty-eight and a half. Um, I'm going to send him off. Um, don't know how old he is. We do have trail camera pictures of him. Um, but I'll be honest with you, with everybody. I did not, we, I didn't know which eight pointer it was. Um, we had Patrick and I have tried to tally up. We think we had either 10 or 11 different eight pointers on that farm. And two of them were what we considered mature. Um, I didn't know if it was one of those two or a different one that we just didn't have a picture of, but, um, I'll be honest with people after the night that I had, uh, the frustration level that I had, I saw mass, I saw frame and he got shot. Um, I did not shoot him with my big new, uh, um, muzzle loader that had built, uh, shot him with 20 gauge shotgun and it was about a 60 yard shot. He went 20 yards and fell over in the Creek. So, um, you know, the spot that I was in when I killed him, um, I don't even know how deep that ravine is. He was down in that ravine. Uh, if it wouldn't been for my, uh, for my buddy, Patrick Simpson, that was there, he actually, when I told him, you know, I'd shot one, he actually left his hunt. Um, cause he knew there was no way I could even really even get down in there with my leg um and help me get it out so um just uh just really blessed that i have a core of really good friends that uh, have looked out for me in multiple ways this year you know west delks hung that um ladder stand for me in uh, i believe august so if it wouldn't have been for my friends and of course my wife um i i would not have um you know, even had a shot at being out there hunting much less uh be able to kill a pretty good buck i'm i'm happy with him um, like I said, I still have two tags. I'm still going after the 160. That's still my mile mark on, uh, what my goal is. I'm still looking for a 160 class buck. Um, but you know, um, I think I told you, um, as of, uh, Thursday, I had passed 12 bucks that would have scored between 130 and 140. And that's not to brag, it's just a matter of explaining that I'm on a different journey than Don Higgins is on, right? And there's a lot of people that are on a different journey than me. So um, it, it, it gets to be very frustrating. You start putting pressure on yourself. Um, but, um, you know, the, the stories just keep grinding. As bad as it can seem, it can flip, in a, it can flip a switch and you can have a, a mature buck walk right out in front of you or a buck that meets your your goals for that year right keep plugging away that's all you can do so he's off to the taxidermist i've already gone to deerage.com and uh and ordered my tooth kit it'll be here this week i'll send those off and uh, i ordered the expedited service so um that'll get turned around so hopefully by episode 40 i'll be able to tell everybody how old that buck was so awesome well, congratulations on your kill. I appreciate it. We still got work to do. Um, you got an Illinois tag left, and I have an Illinois bow tag left and a Kentucky tag. So um, mm-hmm. let's um, let's talk about Thanksgiving coming up a little bit here. What's what do you think? I think I think as lockdown is phasing out, um, depending on the weather, Thanksgiving through uh, late season could be dynamite. 
I agree 100%. Um, the Bucks are still pretty much locked down at the moment, but by this time next week, that's going to be totally over. And in fact, as the week wears on, these mature Bucks are going to find it harder and harder to, to hook up with their next girlfriend. So they're going to leave one hot dough, and it's they're going to be on their feet more searching for their next one right. than they have been. It's been just they've been just running from one to the next, but it's going to be harder to find that next one, and they're going to be on their feet searching. And as we go through the week, that's just going to become more and more pronounced with each passing day. And uh, you know, by Thanksgiving and next weekend, it's going to be a fantastic time to kill a giant. Right. So we got a couple of things, you know, working for us is that the number of does that are actually in season is much less now than what it will be, what it was on November 9th, 10th, and 11th, right? So right. the ground that they're having to cover is going to be so much more. So focusing um, on areas that those does are going to be, which they've been run hard the last, you know, two, three weeks and been pinned down, Late season food source is going to be fantastic. The later and the colder that it gets, right? For sure. Yep. yep. So, uh, you know, typically what I see on an average year, and I know this has been anything but an average year in more ways than one, right. but uh, typically what I'll see is is about the first of December, last couple of days in November, the bucks, you know, they've been searching for does because the does are harder and harder to find. And then they, they just almost quit around the first of December and they almost just lay, lay down for two weeks to recover from what they've been through. <laughs> I think and, uh, that's, that's the equivalent of us taking a nap, isn't it? <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> but they do it for two weeks. So, well, they uh, run, they run a whole lot harder than we do it. <laughs> that's true. Um, but but the first two weeks of December, in my opinion, are the worst two weeks of the season. Interesting. So we're getting ready to have a fantastic week here, and then it's going to die. Okay. And then the bucks are going to just lay around, and they're probably going to hit the food sources after dark a little bit, unless they happen to find the occasional rare hot dough. But they're, they're not moving much the first two weeks of December. And then as we start approaching Christmas, if you can get some cold spell or cold weather, cold front comes through, then that's really going to put them on their feet in the afternoons headed to those food sources. Gotcha. So, uh, well, let's talk. I want to, I want to ask you something. There's something I thought about, uh, in the stand this week and last, last episode, um, last Sunday, we talked about the lockdown and, and, and spent quite a bit of time on that. But through this week, the amount of messages that people have sent me through social media has been crazy when they <laughs> say they're frustrated that they're not seeing bucks and they're seeing a bunch of does in food sources. And it mm-hmm. hit me late in the day, and, and please, to, to our listeners, do not take this as a bash. This is just a learning experience and possibly an observation, I think, that might help you. I think that for some of our younger hunters that are looking out with their binoculars or whatever and seeing deer without horns in a food plot feeding, they're not recognizing the difference between fawns and does. 
and it kind of goes back a little bit. And, and what ended up happening is somebody had sent me a message on social media saying, I saw five does in the food plot and not one buck came and checked them. And my response back to them, are you sure they were does or were they fawns? And he says, well, I don't know. How do I tell the difference? And it just it made me think a little bit back to that conversation we had last week about, uh, you know, the, the mom will get run off and pinned down and locked down somewhere else while the does are sitting there waiting for mom just feeding. And I think for young hunters, that might explain maybe a little bit about what some young hunters are seeing when they say they're seeing all these does and no bucks are coming to check them. Right. And I hear the same thing. You know, somebody will say, well, I've I seen 10 does on this hunt. I can't believe I didn't. there wasn't a buck with them. Well, the reason for that, there was probably one hot doe in the area, and every buck in there was with her. Right. So, you know, they use their nose the way we use our eyes, and they smell that hot doe every buck around running that direction. So we, we obviously have a lot of new listeners. I want you just real quick before we, we move on, I want you to just to touch real quick. We've talked about this before, but talk about how those yearling does, um, the ones that are out by themselves that we see during lockdown feeding, when do they come in cycle and how does that relate to people that say, oh, I saw a buck chasing in January or over Christmas break? <laughs> Uh, for the for the new listeners, just give us a quick rundown of when do those um, those yearling does come into heat? How does that all work into the equation? And what some people say is a second rut. Well, uh, the doe fawn comes in the heat when she reaches a certain body weight, roughly eighty pounds, and different doe fawns are going to hit that at different times. It's going to be one hundred percent random. It's not going to be concentrated 30 days after the main rut or anything like that, the whole second rut theory. It's going to be 100% random. And in my observations over the last 40-plus years, I believe that most doe fawns are going to hit that weight and come into their first estrus cycle in January. More will hit estrus in January than any other month. Um, but I've seen them, you know, in February and even March. Um, enter that estrus cycle and get bred and some will in december you know maybe a earlier born fawn or a fawn that was a single so she got all her mother's milk instead of having to share it with a twin um some of them may hit that 80 pound mark sooner and come in in december but it's 100 percent random it's not like there's right you know the moon or something brings them in heat so you just never know when it's going to happen but when it does they're going to have the attention of every buck in the area so I just wanted to I wanted to circle back on that. We've talked about that before, but for our new listeners, and we're right in the middle of this uh, coming out of this lockdown phase to try to help people understand these does that you're seeing. Number one, are they really a doe or are they a fawn? And then also, uh, if you see that chasing going on in December, January, maybe even in February, why that is going on. So really good information that I think a lot of people just really don't understand. So hopefully that helps you guys um, um, 
understand this lockdown and, and the phase of the rut a little bit better. Speaking of Thanksgiving, um, I'm really excited. I haven't even I'm, – I'm kind of hurt, honestly. I haven't even seen the raw footage of Mel getting shot yet. Um, I guess I'm going to have to wait for Thanksgiving Day, too, um, along with everybody else. Uh, Mel's video is going to come out on Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, it is. And I just got to watch a uh, preliminary version of, of the hunt this afternoon. Um, Steve Shields, who's producing this video, um, sent it to me for comment. And I'm extremely happy <laughs> with the job Steve's done. Look good. And he's not even done yet. He still has to cut in some B-roll footage and some trail camera photos and things but uh fantastic i'm telling you what i've seen it's the best video i've ever been a part of awesome. and not that i'm a tv star or anything like that but um i'm extremely pleased with how this video is, has turned out and did the footage you're of, even on there Terry. did the footage of me filming him uh last year could you pick up the noise of the blind shaking because uh, I had a 216 inch deer in front of me that you weren't shooting. Did, did that, did that make it on the, on the cut? Well, that footage is on there. I, you can't, the camera's not real steady. So I don't know if he, <laughs> if he used, uh, you and I were both filming. So I don't know if he got the footage from my camera or yours, but uh, I know mine was out of focus for there. a little bit when he popped up out of that switchgrass. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> I had mine yeah. on. I had mine on manual focus, and I was just. I think my eyes were the size of volleyballs, and then I thought, "Oh shoot, I got to focus this camera." So uh, it was a couple seconds before I got him. I got him back in focus, but super excited that that video footage is going to air on Thanksgiving Day uh, on uh, Don's YouTube channel called Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Make sure you go there and subscribe to it. That way, you get notified. Uh, when these videos come out, I'm I'm super excited to watch this. Yep, I, I'm super excited to see it too. The the finished version, but uh, just because of what I've seen so far, um, I'm very happy with how it turned out. All right. Well, what else? Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, coming out of this gun season a little bit. What else you want to talk about here? Well, actually, I want to back up a little bit, Terry. I want to talk about last week. Um, episode. Okay. I, and whenever we record these podcasts, I always go back and, and listen to them just to critique myself as much as anything and, and listen to exactly what I said and, uh, make sure that I'm happy with it and everything. And I listened to last week's episode and we talked about, you know, four shots on deer, people taking straight on shots. And, and I want to revisit that because I, I don't think I did a, a very good job really educating or helping helping the listeners learn anything. Uh, you know, I, I, we hit on shot selection a little bit. But when it comes to lost deer, I, I think that we can really look at three or four things. If somebody tell our listeners right now, if they will just think of any deer that they lost, they shot it and lost it. I'm going to bet you one of three things happened. First of all, I'm going to bet you that either they took a shot that was more than, say, 25 yards. They took a long shot with, with archery equipment. Or they took a shot at a bad angle, like, like we talked about last week, shooting them down through the back. 
Or the third thing, and this is where it's going to get really controversial, and you kind of called me out a little bit on it, Terry. The, the third reason that people lose deer is expandable broadheads. Now, last, I, uh, right after we recorded that last podcast, I was on social media, and somebody posted a picture of a deer laying there, and it had an arrow sticking out of it. And, you know, 90% of that arrow had never even penetrated that deer. And I knew, as soon as I seen that picture, I knew that was an expandable broadhead. And you you called me out last episode, Terry. You said that you used to say, I, or I used to say, <laughs> mechanical broadhead should be outlawed. <laughs> you, and, and you've I'm told me that multiple times. <laughs> I have. And I'm going to say it again. Expandable broadhead should be outlawed. And I want you to... I want folks to think about it like this. You, you shoot a, a deer with a broadhead. I would rather have a one-inch hole going clear through that deer than a two-inch hole going halfway into that deer. And you think about it, you're shooting this deer from a tree stand. Your entrance is usually going to be a little, your entrance wound is going to be a little bit higher and your exit wound is going to be a little bit lower. So, you want complete pass through. Give you give you two holes for that deer to lose blood for you to track him. And if you don't get that exit hole, that lower hole, you're going to get a fraction of the blood trail. Now, I, I will grant that if a deer is hit right, a mechanical broadhead will work most of the time as long as um, you know it deploys like it's supposed to. But the fact of the matter is. An expandable broadhead is a chance that does not need to be taken. If you use expandable broadhead, you are absolutely going to lose a deer at some point. And it's to the point, it is so bad that I'm not going to mention any names, but I know a gentleman who has a dog and tracks wounded deer for people. And when you call him, he will ask you a series of questions about the deer you shot. And if you shot your deer with an expandable broadhead, this man will not even come look for your deer. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna mention that, but I was gonna call him by name. I won't now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have permission to use his name, so I'm that's, not. That's but, right. So, um, you know, because he's been on so many blood trails with expandable heads that the deer is, is never found. And I just, I, I think that uh, I, I take a different approach in the hunting industry than most others. Um, most are afraid to make statements like that. They don't want to offend, um, you know, a manufacturer or something like that. And I'm about to get on another tangent here in a second, but I, I just think that we owe it to the animal to kill them as quickly and as humanely as possible. And I don't think expandable broadheads, in my opinion, are the way to do that. And I know there's going to be a bunch of listeners disagree with me that's fine you can disagree with me but uh, you're never going to change my mind on that do you want to throw any i I know you're sitting there chomping at the bit terry ready to say something so i'm going to let you have it before i move on to my well i think you were probably you were probably uh in some ways surprised at my answer last week um yeah and and (laughs) i mean and and our friend who now i'm not going to mention him by name um it was a big part of that and because he he deals in the arena of deer that don't die 
I mean, that is, that is, I wouldn't call it a business because he really doesn't even charge for it. Uh, I think he does it for donations still, if I'm not mistaken. I uh, might be wrong on mm-hmm. that, but the bottom line is his, his whole thing is trying to help people who it didn't go as planned, right? And when he will not drive to a location, risk getting his dog out, risk getting the injury to the dog and the time based on the equipment he uses. And, I mean, I've personally been with that dog when he's tracked a deer and, and heard the phone conversation. It's how high were you? How far was the shot? What kind of broadhead was it? What kind of angle was the, the arrow? Did it carry it off or did it pass through? And then he judges that information. And if he's firmly believes enough that says it's not worth my time to drive there based on the type of broadhead, that holds a lot of water for me. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, more so to where I would have a, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're this way where <laughs> I would have a industry pro staff person say, Oh, this is the best broadhead ever. When, when I have a guy that I, that has nothing to gain from it, but lives in the world of lost deer and it's that vital to him that holds water to me. And then you look at it from a kinetic energy and an engineering standpoint. You know, I work in manufacturing, so that's kind of where I I live at in my head. If you have a pass-through with either broadhead, you should be in good shape as long as you're not on the ground up in no man's land. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're in a tree stand shooting down and you have a broad uh, pass-through, either way, that deer should be dead, right? I agree with that 100%. Okay, so let's talk about when you don't have a pass-through. You Mm -hmm. sometimes don't have a pass-through because some people can't shoot enough poundage or their setup just isn't right. They're not using a stiff enough arrow. They're not getting enough thump or kinetic energy into that, that that mechanical broadhead to deploy that arrow absorbs so much of that kinetic energy, you lose the penetration, okay? The second thing is, if you have basically a puncture wound where the the broadhead hits the animal and the arrow comes back out, when that arrow comes back out, it also folds back up just like it went before it went in. So therefore, you have a hole going in and they fold up and they come back out. Think about it this way. If that happens for some reason with a fixed blade broadhead, I'm ripping and tearing as I'm pulling back out. Mm-hmm. Right? On a let's uh, let's look at a opposite side shoulder hit. If I if I go through and I lodge into that other shoulder, I would rather have a fixed blade broadhead that's in there grinding up and eating up that shoulder, cutting more arteries and blood vessels than I would something that's going to fold back up. Um, I did see a uh, interesting picture on social media, and I have no idea if it was true. I have no idea if it was propaganda from a fixed blade broadhead company, but it was actually a picture from a meat processor that had a bucket of broken arrows with um, all of mechanical broadheads that were inside of deer that they were processing. And I thought mm-hmm. that, I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful stuff if it's really true. So, uh, I have no problem with your opinion. I think that there is a lot to it. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I probably have a little bit different opinion than you and a lot of difference than other people, but doggone it. It's just, it's such a, 
I keep going back to what what your buddy told us. It is not supposed to be easy. This sport and hobby that we're trying to do, where we're trying to to get close enough to a mature animal, we do all of this work, and you take the shortcut or the gimmick, which is the final deal to close it, and you're going to use something that's that that has more risk. Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with. So. Well, and I'm glad you brought up kinetic energy because a lot of guys, bow hunters, guys, girls, whatever, they want to put those expandable broadheads on a light arrow. Yep. And I'm a heavy arrow guy with a thick blade broadhead, sharp as can be, clear out to the tip. And, you know, when it comes to kinetic energy, the best example I ever heard was Let's say there's a snow drift, and you and I go out to a snow drift, and in my pocket, I pull out a golf ball, and I hold that golf ball head high and drop it down into the snow. How far is it going to penetrate? And then I hand you a ping pong ball, and I tell you to throw this ping pong ball into that snowbank just as hard as you possibly can. Which one's going to penetrate the best? I guarantee you that that golf ball that you simply dropped has more kinetic energy and it's going to penetrate farther. Even though it's going slower, it's going to penetrate farther into that snowbank than the ping pong ball you throw as hard as you can. And it's the same way with light arrows versus heavy arrows. That heavy arrow with a good fixed blade broadhead is going to penetrate and it's going to do a better job and a more humane and quicker job of killing deer and this trash that they call mechanical broadheads, and they are trash. If you guys got a mechanical head, you need to take them off your arrows right now, and you need to walk over to the trash can and throw them away. <laughs> don't be giving them to your buddies. Your buddies don't need them either. Don't be throwing them in the drawer for somebody else to dig out in a few weeks. Throw the junk in the trash. They're trash. They're absolute trash. Nobody else in this industry is going to say it. I'm going to say it. Mechanical heads are trash. They should be outlawed. And I'll leave it at that. Well. You ready to move on? Because <laughs> I'm not done yet. That made my night. I'm, let's go. <laughs> Come on. Keep priming that pump. Okay. <laughs> I want to I talk a little bit about this, this idea in, in the hunting industry that's being promoted that we need to be recruiting more hunters. Now, now listen, I am all for anyone that wants to hunt. I'm all for it a hundred percent. If someone comes to me and wants advice or help or whatever, because they want to get into hunting, I am going to help them all I can. But we need to really look at why is the hunting industry promoting the recruiting of hunters? Hunters are never going to have the political clout. They're never going to be in the majority ever. All these people want to do is sell more equipment. Exactly. They want more hunters so they can sell more equipment. Now I want to ask the listeners a question. Do you have trouble finding a place to hunt? Because I do. I've lost three hunting properties this year and I'm probably going to lose more. I, I don't need a single other hunter in my area. And in my area, I'm talking three counties. We don't need more hunters. It's hard enough to find a place to hunt. Why in the world do you need to go out and recruit somebody to become a hunter? It, hunting is either in your blood or it's not. 
you don't, you just don't take a guy that likes to golf and make a deer hunter out of him. I mean, there's you can like both for sure, but hunting is either in your blood or not. And this idea that we have in the hunting industry that we need to be recruiting more hunters is a bunch of garbage too. It needs to go right in the same pile with mechanical broadheads. I think, that, and I'll just uh, leave it at that. Well, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of a clarification on this. Okay. I think, I think um, if I know you, what you're implying here is when you say recruit a new hunter, you're not talking about introducing the outdoors to kids. You're talking about going and finding other adults. Um, from what I know of you, you're all for you know taking your kids and introducing kids into the outdoors oh. and stewardship. That's that's not what. And and if I don't make this clarification, I think a bunch of people are going to jump on you. <laughs> you are absolutely right. I am I am all for taking a kid hunting, and if that kid ends up liking hunting, then keep on taking it. But you know, I, I took both of my daughters when they were young. My oldest daughter liked it, and she continues to hunt to this day. My youngest daughter did not want anything to do with it, and I never forced it on her again. Yeah. I wanted her to experience it, you know, at least once. But if that interest is it's in your blood or it's not. Yeah. And, and to try to, to recruit people that, that really have no interest, I think is almost detrimental. Well, I you, think you, know, goes, you could totally it, turn them off. It goes to two different things. I think the the companies are so, from a business standpoint, these companies, consumers have to realize the more gimmicky these products are, the more profit margin is really in them. And and I, I challenge someone to not to prove me wrong on that. The more gimmicky you go to, you go to trade shows and you see this garbage that you know the rear view camera for your tree stand and. I mean, just crazy stuff that people have come up with as a gimmick to try to make this this sport easy. Uh, when when companies pick that up and start mass producing it, the more gimmicky it is, the more margin it is. So I think that that ploy to get more people to want that quick fix, that quick satisfaction that they're going to start hunting and then all of a sudden go to the point where they're targeting a 180-inch deer every year, uh, those are the people that want, you know, every Joe, Dick, and Harry to, to, to be a hunter. The second thing is, and I, I'll be the one to call them out, our states have gotten to where they're making decisions purely on the revenue stream that, that hunting tags and licenses are providing to the state. Because Absolutely. half of these states are running in a deficit budget, so oh, let's make let's make a gun season three weeks long in the state of Kentucky, right during peak rut. Why? So they can sell more tags. Yep. You know they they want to encourage us to take all these people hunting. Why? So they can sell more tags. Um, you know I'm I'm an out of state hunter to the state of Illinois, and and. I go up there and buy two tags every year. There's times when I shouldn't be allowed to do that. After the 2012 EHD that set in, we didn't go up there and hunt because we felt guilty even hunting, killing a deer. It decimated so many animals. It was like four or five years before we ever came back, and the state still left, let it to where out-of-state people could come in and buy two tags, even with the whole herd gone. So I think that yep. the I think that the revenue stream of the states are also uh, playing into some of that 
recruitment of people that really don't have any business doing it. But I can tell you what, you and I are connected a whole lot with a lot of people. And when it's hard for us to find land, that ought to tell people something. Yep. If you think you need, we need to be recruiting more hunters, just ask yourself, how many of them do you want in your neck of the woods? Because I'm telling you around my area, we don't need them. I, I don't know where they're going to hunt. They're, they're going to be sitting on, in a tree and shaking hands with the guy in the next tree next to him. Well, I mean, because, I, uh, I'm not exaggerating. I got 10 people, 10 people right now that, oh, get me a lease or get me property in Illinois. I want to go up there and hunt. I can't find places for myself to hunt. There are no leases that aren't get online and yep. search the same way I do. They're just not there. And the, the price is it's becoming a rich person sport. When you start seeing good grief, 25, 30, $30 an acre to lease property to hunt. Are you kidding me? Yep. So, and you got to pay for the 200 acres of open tillable ground that doesn't have a blade of grass on it. Exactly. You lease it too. So, boy, there's 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 two things that no podcast or no pod nobody will come out and actually say. So, well, I think some of our popularity is because uh, we say what other people won't. Well, and, and at the same time, if you disagree with us, that's okay. Send us a message, leave exactly. a comment. That's fine. Um, you know, it's it's it gets back into I'm I'm always willing, and, and this is this is my turn to rant a little bit. I'm always willing to have the crossbow debate with people because there's a lot of purists that are anti-crossbow, even for disabled people. Um, I don't think that there should be open season for crossbow. I think it should be a separate season. Um, and and I'm willing to to go and discuss it. But when it, it then it usually ends up turning into a moral and ethics discussion is usually where it goes. And... I'm perfectly willing to, to talk to people and, and have that conversation. But I tell you what, within the last month, two people have compared crossbow hunting with abortion. And I'm just telling you, if, if you are relating a deer season or a rule within a deer season to murdering an unborn child that I'm done talking with you because that's, <laughs> that's, that's the stupidest <laughs> comparison that somebody could even have when you're talking about murdering somebody, especially an innocent unborn baby. I'm, I'm not even going to entertain that, but outside of that, as long as you don't bring up and compare abortion to crossbows, I'll be happy to talk with you about it. <laughs> I'm serious. It's happened to me a couple of times within the last month. I'm well, like, are you kidding me? I, I think you might've be taking it out of context. just a little bit. <laughs> I think the point, the point is that, a lot. Some people have the idea that if it's illegal, it's okay. And I think abortion is the example that no, abortion is legal, but it's not okay. Now I get what you're saying, and I, I agree they're totally two unrelated um, issues. But but I think the point is that just because something is legal does not make it okay. And and. For the record, as far as crossbows, I don't give a crap what anybody shoots their deer with. I mean, but I think that having crossbows during the entire archery season 
And, and it goes back to the manufacturers. You know, they started, okay, crossbows are only for people with physical limitations, mm-hmm. um, handicapped or whatever. And then, then they changed it to, okay, we're going to add anybody over 60 years old, they can have crossbow too. And then it was like, okay, kids under, I don't know what the heck it was here in Illinois. And they made it legal for kids. And it was one step at a time, and it ain't got anything to do with anything whatsoever except making money. Revenue. Let's sell more tags. Let's sell more equipment. Revenue. Let's use the deer. Let's let's pimp off the deer herd to make money for a bunch of other crap that hasn't even got nothing to do with conservation. Um, it's just our society in general. It's just when you you get a bunch of liberals running the, the country or a state like they do in Illinois, and you know, insanity rules. Well, I agree with Thomas you 100%. Did, but you mention abortion in the same sentence as a as as a crossbow. I don't care. I'm done talking <laughs> with you. Come up with a come up with a better analogy. <laughs> All right. Next next episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, go ahead. I throw think... an, throw another one at me. <laughs> well, I've got my list here in front of me, and I, I think I went through all the, the good stuff. So I'm gonna have to come up with a new list for next episode. Have but, you gotten uh, Have you gotten any deposits for your master class yet? Since we started talking about it the last couple of weeks, uh, yeah, actually, uh, I'm telling you, it, it's unreal how this how my consulting in the master class has taken off. And if any listener has got any interest in either one of them, you need to get a hold of me quick because. Uh, I've got over 30 consulting visits lined up for the winter, and, and usually my phone doesn't even start ringing until after Thanksgiving for these things. And I've already got, you know, getting I, – I can handle about 50 a winter. Um, so I'm well over halfway there. And as far as the uh, master courses, I've already got people signed up for every course. Um, that They're going to sell out. Um, and and – you know, interesting enough, I got a, an email this week. Uh, a lady was didn't know what to buy her husband for Christmas. And she sends me an email and says, I know he loves your podcast and would like to, he mentioned he'd like to come to your course. And she says, that's what I'm getting him for Christmas. So, so you got to make a I gift certificate for him. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I told her that I'll send her a, uh, one of my brochures that she could wrap up. But, uh, Anybody out there listening, you need a uh, need to give your wife a hint for what to buy you for Christmas. There's well, an idea I never even thought of. <laughs> well, I'm a little concerned actually because somebody indirectly volunteered me to smoke meat for the master classes this year. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. We haven't talked about that, but uh, need to get a handle on how many people we're feeding too. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am going to increase your pay, so you may get a an increased list of duties too. So. <laughs> Camp Chef would be one of them. Camp Chef, <laughs> I'm, I'm game. Well, I, I appreciate I think, you I think, coming all the way. I think the uh, the of course we canceled them last year, but two years ago, uh, I think I fell asleep in one of the 360 blinds in the middle of it. So this one will keep. Well, me you'd up. heard it all before, so. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate your help, Terry. You come up all the way from Kentucky for each one of them and um, help me to keep everybody corralled and and keep everything moving, help people with what they might need. And we try to, to uh, cater to them there for the day. And 
I appreciate you coming up and doing that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I mean, let's face it, you get to sit around talking about deer hunting with guys, so it's it's a lot of fun. Yep. So good deal. Um, real quick, uh, we're running really late. We're almost fifty minutes in. We haven't even gotten to the buy farm. Uh, <laughs> talk talk about um, your giveaway because it's related to the Smoky video and Thanksgiving, but also with the master classes. Just tell everybody what they have to do to participate in this giveaway and what it is. So I'm giving away a free attendance at each of the three master courses to be held next March. Um, in order to be qualified, you need to uh, go to my Higgins Outdoors Facebook page and follow and like that page. You also need to go to uh, the Chasing Giants with Higgins Outdoors YouTube channel and subscribe to that YouTube channel. And starting, we're going to do it for the next three episodes of Chasing Giants. We're going to announce one winner each each episode for the next three um, for free attendance at that the master course. So make sure you you like the YouTube or subscribe to the YouTube channel and like and follow the Facebook page. Yeah. So uh, travel and logistics are on you, but free attendance to it, and it sounds like you'll be eating good if I'm cooking. So for sure. All for right. Sure. Well, let's move on to the BioFarm.com property of the week. Buyafarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. This week's featured property is a bargain, folks. 55 acres in Clay County, Illinois. Uh, it's located just at the east, east edge or east side of uh, Clay City. Um, if you're looking for a hunting or recreational track, you really need to check this one out. Uh, the price is $2,500 an acre, so $137,000 total. You're not going to find a hunting property cheaper than that. There's uh, large trees on there. So there's some timber uh, that could be cut, get you a little bit of income. Um, the taxes on this place are only $146. Wow. $146 a year. Only $137,000 for 55-acre hunting property. Um, you know, you could take a portable building or a camper or something there and make you a little camp, and you're, you're just not going to find a cheaper um, hunting property. If you're interested in this, it's on the buyafarm.com website, and uh, the agent is Don Bailey. Don can re be reached at uh, 618 919 1031 and he'd be glad to show it to you the price has actually been reduced um i think it was 2750 an acre so they've knocked 250 dollars an acre off but you're not going to find a hunting property cheaper than that yeah exactly and and there's uh depending on what the uh valuation of the timber you might be able to recoup some of that pretty quickly um but be a great deer camper uh turkey camp for for people so yep for sure uh, please go like uh buyfarm.com's uh facebook page uh they post all of their uh, properties and events on there regularly and if you want to learn more about this property obviously go to buyfarm.com we appreciate their support of the podcast and uh hope that our listeners will go out and um and view their um their listings so uh i think we got time for a couple questions still um Depends on how much of a rant it gets us on. We're both pretty dialed up today. Yeah, well, as long as we don't get on mechanical broadheads, I think we'll be fine. Or turkeys. 
Did you see my post about the turkeys? You know, somebody sent a question in about turkeys for you, didn't they? I don't know. I think so. I made um, the analogy. It seemed like I made a bunch of these analogies. Um, you know, I said that, you know, turkeys to me are like the Dixie Chicks to country music or like the Kentucky <laughs> governor to the state of Kentucky, or I would guess the Illinois governor would apply to that too with trying to shut it down. It was, I made all of these, you know, it was like, Captain Zerg to Buzz Light, Buzz Lightyear, or Boss Hog to the Duke Boys, you know, and and <laughs> I, anyway, that was off on a. You don't like thing. turkeys? That way. I, I cannot stand turkeys. I saw sixty three of them the other day. Wow, that's a lot of Thanksgiving dinners right there. Legalized? That's, what? Do you, how, hey, you don't like you don't like uh, mechanical broadheads. What about turkey hunting with tannerite? Um, if that's your thing, go for it. I think that's illegal. So, anyway, let's listen to our first question. First question is from Dustin Doss from Rockville, Indiana. Dustin says, Don, I hunt a small property that butts right up to a subdivision. Seems like most years I find the biggest buck on the property beds in the point that is right next to all the houses. When deer live this close to people, do they get desensitized to human activity? When I'm in the stand, I can hear people talking and tinkering in their garages. I know the deer can for sure smell them. That is still where they want to be. Does a hunter have an advantage in this situation? Can you get away with hunting riskier wind since the deer smell people daily and don't seem to mind? I'm very conservative when it comes to, to taking chances on an iffy wind, probably too conservative at times. What are your thoughts on hunting these types of situations? Um, Dustin, first of all, a mature buck, he knows the difference between a guy mowing his yard, raking his leaves, walking his dog in the subdivision, whatever, and and the smell of some man in a tree (laughs) or a hunter in his woods. He knows, in other words, he knows where those people do not represent a danger and where they do. He's there because he feels safe. Exactly. Yep. So the, the the people in the subdivision are not a threat to that deer, but once you get into to his domain, then you become a threat. And he absolutely, uh, um, you, you don't want to take a chance hunting riskier winds. I guess that was your question. Um, you still need to take every precaution. Um, as far as uh, what was your other question here? Does it desensitize to, to human activity? I think it, it can to some degree. Um, they're going to be a little more um, tolerant to like ground scent and maybe noises. But at, at the same time, it, it's all going to depend on, you know, where that ground scent's at. If it's out in an open field, say your access to your stand is across an open field, ground scent out there in that situation is probably not going to be near the issue as say you get in an area that's uh, very isolated with with almost no human intrusion then every time a deer comes across your scent it's gonna he's gonna go on high alert so there probably is some desensitive desensitive i'll say that word again (laughs) yeah exactly desensitized there you go there you go they probably do get some desensitized to some degree but um 
as far as does the hunter have an advantage, I, maybe a little bit, but you still need to, to keep playing the wind and be conservative and, and not push your luck there. I mean, deer are one of the most adaptable creatures in God's creation. And, um, and they go and live where they feel safe. And if that circumstance or environment changes with somebody doing something that's not normal, they're going to know it. Yep, for sure. Great question, Dustin. Let's move on. Maybe we can get another one or two in here. All right. Next one comes from Levi Wentworth from Atkinson, Nebraska. Levi says, hey, Don and Terry, I love the podcast. When you are trying to learn the wind for certain stand sites, is there a way you do that? We have deep draws and a lot of cedar trees, and they affect the wind a lot. Also, do you use, like, milkweed to see if eddies are thermal certain times of the day? Thank you, and God bless. I have a very... Well, first of all, I don't have the same type of terrain that you described here, Levi, but my approach is probably one that you can use there. I'm, I'm sure it is. So what I do at my home, I've got a, uh, a weather sock or wind sock, and I will note the wind direction before I, I head out to hunt. You need to do the same. You need to have a wind sock at your house. So let's just say, for example's sake, that, that you've got a west wind at your house. You, you, so you go out and hunt. You've got the milkweed seed with you. And you get there, and, and you think it's good for the west wind, but you turn that milk milkweed seed loose, and the wind is doing something totally different than what you expected. You need to note what it's doing at that location with a west wind at your house. So the next time you've got a west wind at your house, you know what's happening at that stand location. And it, it's probably going to be a matter of taking notes for every stand site you got. But in the, the rough terrain like you're describing, I don't know what else you can do. Um, you, you need that reference point. That reference point is the wind sock at your house. And then the then you go to your stand site and see what that wind's doing at that specific location. That's great advice. Um, one of my buddies bought a new piece of ground here in Kentucky this year, and it's got this really – I mean, the, the the property is phenomenal, and uh, the entrance point is in this bottom along a creek bank, and then there's this huge big hill that runs down through the middle of the property with another bottom on the other side, and then they come around and, and join out at the end, and, and it fades off in this tall ridge. And, you know, we were, I just looked at it, and I was like, man, I do not know what the wind is going to do. And we, we had that exact same conversation. I said, you need to get on Amazon or go buy you some wind socks, put one in this bottom, put one on the top of the hill and put one in the other bottom and, and go and monitor and look and see what these winds are going to do based on that terrain. But I, I told him, I was like, you can do that any time of the year, get those things up in the off season and, and look at what the wind's doing in February, March, and April, don't wait till hunting season. Right. When, when you got a, a deer bedded up, you can do those evaluations of what the wind's doing based on terrain. Uh, Absolutely. At different times of the year and not, not go burn a stand out because you're not sure what the wind's going to do. Once you've gone that, in there and thrown that, that milkweed up or used your powder, you're done. That's a great point there and a great idea. So, 
you got your stands up, let's say, in, on your property, well, say some Saturday and you got free time, you look out, the wind's out of the west. So go to your property and climb up in every stand on the place and take notes. Take your milkweed seed with you or whatever and take notes. So if you do that a few times, you know, then you should have notes for every single wind direction at every single stand site. And you're doing it outside of hunting season. Give the place all summer to cool off and come fall, you're ready to roll. Right. All right. We got, got we got for one more. We got time for one more. All right. Uh, the next question comes from Patrick Taylor from Grenada, Mississippi. Uh, Patrick says, I love your podcast. You have confirmed several theories I had and opened my eyes to a lot of other ideas. My question is regarding cameras and mature bucks. I have noticed on several of my older, more mature bucks that if they see the camera, that is the only picture I will get of them again at that spot. Have you ever experienced this? Do you think they know what it is, or do they just know it doesn't belong there? Also, do you have any suggestions on how to avoid them seeing the camera? Um, Patrick, I think it's a, it's a, the different situation with each individual buck. Some bucks are very tolerant of, of cameras. You can get their picture day after day at the same camera. They'll look right at it and, and not even pay attention. Um, other bucks, you get their picture one time at a location, that's it. You'll never get their picture there again. I don't know that they know what they are. I mean, I don't even think a deer has the ability to know what a photograph or a camera is, but I think they do have the ability to relate that camera to, to a human. And, uh, you know, the human scent or the ground scent that's, that's left as people come in to check their cameras or whatever, maybe it's even the person uh, spooking deer as they're there checking the camera. But I, I, I'm sure they relate the camera to people. Um, as far as what you can do, uh, I've said this before, I think you can hang your camera a little bit higher. Um, I like to take a couple of screw-in tree steps, and I'll get those cameras up about eight foot or so, angled downward. The other thing is I don't point it down the, the trail where the deer are walking right to the camera or straight away from the camera, but I'll get the uh, the camera off to the side of the trail and, and point straight at the trail, you know, from a side angle, a 90-degree angle or whatever, and uh, so the deer aren't facing it. As they're going up and down the, the trail, it's to their side, not right, right in front of them. So uh, that's the best advice I can give you on trail cameras, and Terry, I think you had an incident just this week where a mature buck, you had a camera on a tree, a cellular camera, <laughs> and a mature buck came and didn't he uh, work your camera over? Yeah, he uh, he actually came up and rubbed the tree. that he, and, and you know that you had a trail camera on that tree. That's why I put the yep. cell camera there. It's not even that you could get into it very close, but uh, he got in there and just thrashed it and uh, ended up breaking the back of the... Of course, it was one of the cheap commodity um, cameras, so the case wasn't real solid, but yeah, he he thrashed it. Um, I forget what day that was on. Was that, uh, that must have been Wednesday night in the middle of the night, I believe. Um, but yeah, he came in and I went back the next day because the camera was turned upside down and to to put it back on and uh he uh, 
he had the bark rubbed off the tree from the ground to the base of the camera. Well, and that's a perfect example of different bucks are going to react to cameras differently. You know, another buck might have seen that camera and hightailed it out of there. Well, so, and there's another point that you just made, and I'll, I'll make this quick. Um, you know, um, we, we have a lot of friends in the industry, and whether, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, they're not sponsored, we're, they're just friends of ours. And the guys at Exodus Trail Cameras do a really good job. They're not trying to sell their cameras. They're trying to educate people on how to place their, their camera setups. And if you go to their website on their blog, uh, they actually have one full uh, blog written about how putting a camera perpendicular to a trail, not parallel, meaning not facing down the trail where the deer is coming or going, but at a 90 degree like Don was just talking about, how that is also not only for protection of the deer not spotting it, but how the photo sensor in these cameras works a whole lot better. So it's just a little nugget out there, you know, not an endorsement, not a sponsorship. It's just more facts of people that kind of get on the nerdy side of the electronics and how they're designed uh, might help you with your question, Patrick. So um, go to the blog section of Excess Trail Cameras and look for that uh, blog about placement of trail cameras. You'll, uh, you'll get a lot out of it. Yep. All right. Well, that's three questions and a whole lot of ranting. So maybe next time well, people understand how you feel about mechanical broadheads. Well, I just hope uh, the next time <laughs> I get a question, and, and that all stemmed from a submitted question. Uh, okay. Um, last episode, uh, who was it? Calvin Hurtis sent a question in about about that, and I, I, I actually tried to take the politically correct approach, and I'm not politically correct very often. And I took a, when I listened to it later, I was pretty disgusted at myself because I don't think people are following us because they want the politically correct answer. I think they follow us because they know they're going to get our, our true feelings that, you know, whatever we feel in our heart is going to come out. And, uh, I appreciate that kind of listener. And I feel I let him down last episode, and, and I wanted to come out today and, and make up for that, and I think I did. So um, I'm probably going to be hearing from a few broadhead companies this week, but that's okay. Um, I'll tell them to throw their stuff in the trash. If, if they. Well, there's one <laughs> thing about it. We have companies coming to us asking to sponsor this podcast, <laughs> and if we don't believe in it and we don't use it and we wouldn't buy it ourselves – we're not talking about it. I mean, it's, um, you know, we, we just de- gracefully decline say we're not interested in the sponsorship. That's, that's the integrity that we hold, uh, that we've all, all held. Um, and you know, even your deal with Matthews is the same. I mean, um, you know, your partnership with them was a long time and, uh, you know, um, you've never shot another bow since. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, and I know we've ran over time, but i got to say this. Um, I posted some pictures on social media of, of Mel, the buck I shot this this year, um, with the new Matthews V3. So this is the first time that Matthews has ever sent me their new bow before it was released to the public. Um They've sent me a new bow for several years, but this is the first time that I ever got one ahead of the release. 
And I was supposed to get the bow back in September, but I did not get the bow until just a few days before I shot Mal. And I did not feel comfortable switching bows in the middle of season. Um, so I went ahead and I hunted with my old Matthews bow. However, I took some photos with the new V3 because I felt that Matthews has been so loyal to me over the years that I felt I owed them that. They thought enough of me to send me that bow ahead of the release. Even though I didn't hunt with it, I felt I owed them the photos. Um, some people on social media thought I was trying to mislead. And if, that, if anybody thought that I was trying to mislead them, I promise you, I'm going to be the most honest person that you've ever met in this industry. Um, I was not trying to mislead. I just felt I owed it to Matthews, and, and I want to clear that up right here. I did not shoot that, bu- that buck with the V3. Never claimed that I did. I shot it with my old Matthews uh, Z9, actually. I do intend to start shooting this V3 as soon as season's over and use it next year. But uh, that's what happened. Anybody that saw those pictures and had any uh, questions about it, you know, well, there's the, my the, story. The post, the post was about the release of the bow. the The post wasn't um, about necessarily mill, but right. part of part of an obligation of anyone that has a partnership, a marketing sponsorship, is to provide marketing collateral back to that company. You know, there there is. Um, certain things that we're held accountable for for what we do and that that includes giving them material that they can use for for their marketing purposes so that's that's the only reason that 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 photo was made and it was it it's not like you posted that picture with that bow the day you shot mel you posted the day that matthews wanted all of their uh partners to start posting you know, pictures and, uh, and information, um, with marketing collateral for that bow. So that's all there was to it. Um, so. Right. All right. So anybody that thinks I misled them, I apologize. That was not my intent at all. I was just trying to fulfill my obligation to a sponsor that's been very loyal to me for 20 years. And I appreciate uh, all they've done for me. And that's that. Well, pretty exciting that we're over 100,000 downloads. Uh, Thank everybody for their support through 38 episodes. Uh, We're going to be back next Sunday and uh, right after Thanksgiving. And hopefully, um, I'm going to take Jonathan here the rest of the week over Thanksgiving break. I'm staying down here. It's still gun season uh, through Sunday. So hopefully we're talking about my boy getting a buck finally. I hope so. And you're gonna take you're gonna take Corey here this coming week. Yeah, my son-in-law uh, will be here to hunt in the morning with me. So, uh, hoping to get him a buck in the next day or two, and maybe even find one to hunt myself. All right, sounds great. So, on behalf of uh, myself, please uh, again leave a comment, uh, review on your podcast platform, and uh, go subscribe and leave uh, some feedback to us on Don's YouTube channel, Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Um, thanks for everybody's support as Don takes us out with our sponsors. We want to thank uh, Biofarm.com, 360 Hunting Blinds, Quiet Cat, Lone Wolf Tree Stand, Matthews Archery, 
Vortex Optics and real-world wildlife products. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>